Hey, just Brian today on the Combat and Classics Podcast special episode because we've got a Q&A. Some of you, for some reason, <laughs> took advantage of our voicemail option, which if you, for whatever reason, want to do that, uh, it's 703-677-8645. You can call and ask your question, and we might play it on there, and we're going to do that today uh, because we've got several questions from uh, Mr. Mark Eleveld's AP English class at Kankakee High School in Illinois. So thanks, Mark, and thanks, everybody else, for calling or writing in with your questions. And our first question is from Maggie. Hello, my name is Maggie Mulcahy, and I'm in Mr. Eleveld's AP Literature class at Kankakee High School in Illinois. You said men and gods are similar and can be hard to tell apart, so what sets them apart to just the human eye? Yeah, so thanks, Maggie, for the question. Um, So just to be clear, we're just talking about our episode on uh, book five, so you can go back and re-listen to that right now if you want to pause and go back and listen to that. And book five is, is a lot about Diomedes, and it's a lot about the, at least we found it, Shiloh, Jeff, and I, a little confusing as to like, who are the gods and who are the mortals and are gods acting like mortals are mortals acting like gods. Uh, So that's why Maggie has this very interesting and understandable question. And I think what's tricky for me and try and answer it is that it's not the same every time. Sometimes gods just appear as mortals. Like in book four, Athena disguises herself as Antinor's son. Laodocus convinces Pandarus to shoot an arrow at Menelaus to break the truce. Uh, Other times they appear as gods, but only some people can see them. Like in book one, when Achilles starts to pull his sword out and Athena stops him. Or in book two, when Athena addresses Odysseus. Other times gods try to appear in disguise, like in book five, when Aphrodite saves her son Aeneas. Um, But Athena had already given Diomedes the power to recognize gods on the battlefield, so he recognizes her anyway and actually wounds her. Uh, other times they appear to many mortals as gods, like um, Athena in Book 2 at line 445. Homer writes, quote, And around the son of Atreus, the kings cherished by Zeus, hastened about marshalling them, and with them went gleaming-eyed Athena, holding the stormy Aegis. Uh, ever ageless and deathless, a hundred tassels of solid gold floated from it, each intricately woven, each worth a hundred oxen. With this she darted and flashed through the host of Achaeans, and she stoked the strength in each man's heart, urging him to go to fight on without respite and do battle, unquote. So it seems to me like people can see her uh, and they're fired up. So uh, I guess my take on what sets them apart to just the human eye is that it's up to the gods if they want to do that or not. Sometimes the gods want to be recognized, sometimes they don't. Um, if that doesn't answer your question or doesn't make sense, uh, Maggie, to, to you or to anybody, you can call back and say, Brian, you have no idea what you're talking about. Um, so let's get to our next question, uh, which is actually from uh, your instructor, Mr. Mark Eleveld. Hello, Combat and Classics editors. Uh, my name is Mark Eleveld. I am an English instructor at Kankakee High School in Illinois, AP literature specifically right now, and we're discussing and going through Iliad Book 5. I believe some of my students will be calling you and, and emailing you. So my question is is similar to Margaret, who called you, Maggie. Um, 
I had an instructor at the University of Chicago, Herman Sinenko, and he wanted to make the argument that the gods in the Iliad are as far away from mankind as possible. Um, of course, he, he dives into the quote by Immanuel Kant that the human mind can't comprehend immortality. Um, but the idea would be that because there is no risk, that when the gods get hurt, nothing's going to happen to them, that when we start thinking of them in in some sort of human way, it's opposite to the character of what it is that they are. So what I'm saying is that they are as alien to us as uh, possible, so far beyond the comprehension of mankind that we can't really process what and who they are. Um, To be immortal, then, is never to be born, never to be dead. Uh, beyond human comprehension. So what's fun about the Iliad for the gods is that it's this thing that occupies their time and that this is the importance of the human condition is that the recognition of sacrifice on the part of humans creates humanity to a certain extent. So all these petty uh, jealousies amongst the gods and all these tiffs between the gods are nothing but playthings so that they can continue on in their petty lives of eternity, something like that. So that was my observation, that uh, the gods are not like uh, humanity at all. I agree with Professor Sinenko. Thanks. Yeah, so thanks for the thanks for the question, Mark. I mean, I think I think we I agree with you. We we've talked about like the gods as like a three camera sitcom. Like nothing nothing ever really bad's gonna happen. Like everybody's gonna hug at the end of the show and and everything's cool. And I, but I, I, you know, I think, and, and this, this, this idea from Kant is, is interesting, you know, the idea that, that man can't comprehend immortality and, and yeah, I mean, I guess that's true to some extent, but we do seem to think about it a lot, right? I mean, we, we've, we've created gods and, and they're immortal and then we have, you know, different ideas about the afterlife. So we're, we're, we might not understand it, but we think about it a lot. And then I, I think in book five specifically, you have this very, and I don't know why Homer's doing this, right? Like Homer ha- is making Diomedes godlike so much that he can wound a god. Also, you have just these, like you said, these petty jealousies, which seem, which seem very human. So I don't know, I don't know what we're to make of this book to some extent, right? Are we, are we to make a, that? the gods are different they're always going to be different and and we can't even understand them or is homer pointing at some thing and in your idea sacrifice may be embedded in this to some way is he pointing at something that is saying you know you can be godlike and petty or you can be mortal and capable of great great acts or, or maybe just imposing your will on other humans. You know, we talked about how killing people was a very unnatural human act. And so I, I, I just think this book blurs those lines a little bit. So, yeah, I think that, I think that there's something going on here. And I, I like to think we wrestle with this in the, in episode, in the episode we did on book five is what is it about them that is different most of the time that's that's blurring here, where gods are appearing as humans, humans can wound gods. There's all kinds of weird stuff going on. Yeah, but I appreciate your question, and I probably didn't help at all or answer anything, but thanks for submitting it. 
Yeah, so our next question is, I am from Mr. Elevate, or I'm in Mr. Elevate's AP Literature class in Kankakee High School in Illinois. My question is, because the gods seem to be easily swayed by humanity, what would happen if the gods destroyed each other because of humanity? Oh, this is from Kate, Caitlin Rose. Hi, Caitlin Rose. So that's a real interesting question. I guess I'd ask first if, if that's possible. Could something happen in the mortal plane that could cause the gods to decide to fight each other until all of them are destroyed? And is, you know, destroying a god possible? To answer the first question, you know, there's a saying in English football, or, or soccer as we call it, that football is the most important, least important thing. Meaning, it's not that important, but of all the not important things in life, English football fans take it the most seriously. And I get the feeling that the Trojan War is that for the gods. It's a way to try to get more power on the immortal plane or to settle old scores and to make sure that their mortal favorites don't suffer too much. But at the end of the day, guys are still going to God and none of them are going to risk their destruction for a bunch of measly mortals. But I wonder if you think differently. So, you know, let me know. You can email us at combatandclassics at gmail.com and just say, Brian, I disagree, which I always like. Next question. We have... Hello, my name is Michael. I'm a student at Kankakee High School. I was wondering if you could answer my question on symbolism in the Iliad. I was curious if Diomedes represents courage in the war between the Greeks and the Trojans. Yeah, so thanks for the question, Michael. I think that's interesting because, you know, the the representative nature of a lot of, in literature generally, I think is very kind of Rorschach testy, which means if you think he represents courage, then he does. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't, if, if you had to ask me, like, what does Diomedes represent? I don't know. Like, in book five specifically, I think maybe I would say that he, he represents what being godlike on a battlefield looks like and maybe feels like. You know, we talked about that a little bit in terms of what it means to be courageous versus what it means to be without fear. You know, I guess when you're on the battlefield and you're without fear is a certain state. And then when you're courageous, I feel like it's different in my mind, but I'm not sure. I don't know if I've ever been courageous. So yeah, I think representation questions get, get sticky for me especially like St. John's people, because we like to just say like, what's the text say? And so I don't know. I, you know, I, I feel like godlike was the, was the word that Homer used a few times in, um, in book five to describe Achilles or describe Diomedes. Ooh, Freudian slip there because, you know, he kind of does remind me of Achilles. And so if Diomedes represents courage and maybe Achilles represents courage, but both of them also are like very ragey. So maybe they also just represent rage. Anyway, I don't think I answered your question really good, Michael, but I appreciate you calling, or I appreciate you writing in, and I appreciate your question. Next question. My name is Adele, and I'm in Mr. Ellabelle's AP Literature Class, Kankakee High School in Illinois. I have a discussion question regarding Book 5 of the Iliad. When looking at Greek mythology, we tend to think that since the gods are immortal and very powerful, they control the humans who are meant to serve the gods. You discussed how many of the gods have human-like flaws and various heroes have godlike qualities, making it difficult at times to differentiate between the two groups. Do you feel that because Homer blurs the lines between humans and gods, it could be argued that humans affect and control the gods as much, if not more, than the gods control the humans? I'm curious whether the fact that the gods are immortal and humans are mortal also plays a factor in the answer to your question. Let me let me take a stab. It's a very interesting question. Let me take a stab at the second part first. So, you know, risk 
and this is something that Mr. Elwell put in his question, the risk of what could go wrong is certainly higher for the humans. So in terms of control, who is incentivized more to control the other? Um, you know, gods are maybe a little incentivized because they're like, oh, this guy's my favorite or this guy's my favorite or this person did this for me, so I kind of owe him. Um, but it doesn't seem like, you know, rock solid. Like, you know, Zeus kind of just says things and then is like, you know, hey, whatever you guys do, don't get involved in this fight. And they're like, sure, but we're gonna. And he's like, well, okay. Um, so it doesn't seem that the stakes are super high on the God side. So how much do they actually care uh, about the humans and how much do they care if they control them is, I guess, one question. And then I guess there's a lot of incentive for humans to try to control the gods, right? And I think that would be an interesting lens. I don't think it's really something that I've I've thought about is, is the idea of control generally. I think I've treated, at least in my kind of reading and analysis of the Iliad, I've kind of treated everybody as very self-deterministic. But it would be interesting to see, to ask that question through the lens of some of these mortal characters of how much are they trying to control the gods? How much are they trying to, I mean, maybe control is the wrong word, but it's like how many of them are trying to get something from the gods and is bribery <laughs> or promises or something like that. Is that a, a way to control and are, and are gods susceptible to that? So that's a, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think, I think I should be a little more on the lookout for that in future books. So thanks for bringing that up. Our next question is from Isabel. Hello, my name is Isabel, and I'm in Mr. Elabel's AP Literature and Composition class. My question is about book five of the Iliad. Why does Athena grant Diomedes powers that will harm the Trojans when the gods are supposed to be fighting for the Trojans because of Achilles' wish? So yeah, this this great question, because it's very confusing. And this is kind of what I was talking about with Adele, right? So like, you know, Zeus is like, all right, you guys better not get involved. And Hera and Athena are just like, we're going to do it anyway. And he's like, oh, you girls. And it's really strange, right? Like, And it's not something that I think we figured out why or how or any of this and what are like the real motivations. How much is it, you know, that I, Athena favors the Greeks, right? How much is it that she just favors Diomedes? How much is it that she's mad at Zeus? I think it's like several of these things. And it also kind of comes back to the idea that the gods don't care that much that there's going to be a lot of bloodshed and there's going to be a lot of people dying in the interim before, you know, we get to that end point of, you know, Troy falling, but also this Greeks, the Greeks getting their butt kicked because of Achilles. So yeah, I'm, I mean, a lot of, a lot of this stuff is very stumpy. A lot of the stuff is very complicated for me. You guys might be able to figure it out. It's, it's very up for interpretation. And, and that's kind of, like I mentioned, literature being very Rorschach testy before. And I think that's true. Like, we, we kind of bring our own biases to this stuff. Like, I, I, I think I mentioned this on the pod before. Like, if I look back at my first copy of the Iliad that I read when I was like a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps down at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and I, I have all these notes in the margins that are like maneuver warfare initiative, you know, because this is like the stuff that you think about when you're a second lieutenant 
in the Marine Corps, but now I, I go through it this time and I'm still a little Marine-y, but I'm looking at it from a different lens and I think I'm also open a little bit more to ambiguity and not so definitive as to this happened because of X or this is this means why it's you know it's subjective i i would ask homer if he was around if anybody knows his number give him my number give him uh what's my number again 703-677-8645 have homer call in and uh he can clear some of this stuff up all right last question uh, hello my name is destiny i'm in mr Ellaville's ap literature class at kanky high school in illinois my question is what separates the gods and humans that makes the gods immortal and powerful and the humans mortal yeah so i yeah this so this ties directly into five right so we were very confused by this and i think you're pointing at this destiny this confusion that we had and asking what's the difference and I, I don't know if I have a good answer. I mean, the, you know, the deathless gods is kind of the description that Homer gives a lot. And so, yeah, they are deathless. But, you know, it's confusing in terms of like the, the Greek thoughts on the afterlife, right? Like there was this kind of underworld where he just kind of hung out. And according to Homer in the Odyssey, it kind of sucked because Achilles was like, oh, I'd give anything to come back just for one day. But it doesn't sound like that bad either, you know? And that's like carried forward to Plato's idea on Socrates, where Socrates is like, oh man, cool, I get to talk to like Hesiod and stuff? This sounds great. I get to talk to Plato? Or I get to talk to Homer? Man, that sounds cool. So there's like some aspect of humans that is notionally deathless, like maybe our soul or something like that. So there does seem to be this kind of bleed over, and your questions are helping me understand this a lot better and your question specifically destiny so i appreciate it and it's something i think i should continue to look out for and that we should continue to discuss is is trying to tease out these differences like are there real differences like is there a real difference between gods and mortals in this book like and i think like you know i actually took a seminar with jeff right after i graduated like saint john's just has these kind of like seminars that you know are kind of uh, electives like there's not credit but we're giant nerds so we just hang out and i'd like graduated and i would just drive, drive to annapolis in the afternoon and hang out and talk about the iliad and you know jeff did a wonderful job of pointing to the parallels between the gods and the mortals if you look at the different books and you look at how the characters and we've talked about this a little bit in the pod but it's super interesting to me that you know that homer uses that structure of having the gods do certain things and then kind of having the humans do certain things that are similar. And it kind of goes back and forth like this. And it's also super interesting if you like TV because any good TV screenwriter is going to have like an A plot and a B plot that are going to be thematic similar, thematically similar and then kind of resolve themselves um, together in the end. And so, like, I, I'm a huge fan of the last book of the Iliad and I have so many thoughts on it, but I don't want to spoil it. But I think there's potentially something going on there when we get to the last book of the Iliad. Something in some, you know, like an A plot, B plot in a well-written TV show where some of the character development's similar in these two separate plot lines. Some of the themes are similar in these two separate plot lines. And then both of the plot lines resolve themselves together in the last book yeah but again i don't want to spoil it i don't want to give you guys my 
assessment just yet because it's probably wrong. So I'll float it when Jeff and Shiloh are on the call and they can correct me before I lay it out and sound really dumb. So thank you, Mr. Eleveld, for having your class call or write in. It's super appreciated. If anybody else wants to call or write in, 703-677-8645. Or you can email us, combatandclassics at gmail.com. Or you can just DM us on the socials where we're at Combat Classics. So thanks a lot and hope you enjoyed it.